This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, we learn about weather monitors for statewide reporting and the funding for that monitoring. But we are going to start today with North Dakota's Gateway to Science. It has a brand new building. Craig Blumenshine got a tour from Executive Director Beth Demke. Beth, welcome to Main Street. Thank you. I appreciate your having me on the show and welcome to our new home. Beth, give me the history and the mission of the Gateway to Science. Uh, Well, we opened in 1994. We were founded by Frank Cook, who was a chemistry professor at Bismarck State College. And our our mission is to inspire the discovery of science through hands-on experiences. And as we walk around a little bit later, you will notice hands-on is a very important part of the mission. We don't walk around here with our hands in our pockets. We are doing something at every experience, every exhibit. Give me the history. This is the third building, correct? This is our third location, yes. So we started in a very small place at Gateway Mall. By the way, that is not why we were named Gateway to Science. We came up with that name, that was Frank's vision, to be a gateway, to be a welcoming place where science was for everyone. So we became North Dakota's Gateway to Science because of the investment that the state made and and all of the people and organizations in the state that invested to get us to this point. Our second location was owned by Bismarck Parks and Rec. It's just down the road at the High Prairie Arts and Science Complex. And um, now in our third location, it's a standalone science center, which is what we had envisioned all along. It's spacious. It is. How big is it? We are over 43,000 square feet. Tell me about the design process. We went through a very elaborated design process with architects and engineers and science professionals talking about not only the building itself, but what exhibits would come in, what experiences were we wanting to present for, for our students, for adults, for families, for the public. Just, and where should it go? This, the site was important. As you see, we're overlooking the Missouri, which is science in itself. Uh, we wanted to connect the science that's happening out in our state with what goes on in this building. And so as you look around, you'll see energy corridor off to the west. You see the weather coming at us. There's transportation in the railroad bridge and I-94, I mentioned the river with water, we've got a water section, and of course agriculture's out there too. So there's all of the science that's happening in North Dakota is depicted here, but you can reflect on it by just looking out the windows. When you came up to decide what would be included inside the building, we'll get to tour here in just a moment, Yeah. how did you do that? Because right now as I'm looking down the corridor, we're on one side of the building, I probably see 30 or 40 different exhibits just right here. Well, and that was a tough part, but we brought in professionals in different industries. We brought in subject matter experts and said, you tell us, what, how can we best depict the science that you do every day? What can we do to show that? Because we're the science museum people, we're not the professionals, so you tell us. And then we went to the Science Museum of Minnesota. They got the contract on our exhibits, and we had a very long process of what exhibits are already out there, what do we need to develop that's brand new, fresh, never been developed before, and we've got some things in our center that are exclusive to us in the, in the world, never been done before. And, I mean, it was just a, a process of, of back and forth between what we thought was important, what the science people thought was important, what the museum people that, you know, our consultants thought they could do for us. And then we also brought in others. So what SMM, the Science Museum of Minnesota, could do was a little different than some other consultants. We brought in others too. And it just became almost um, almost magical. But it's science, it's not magic, it's science. <laughs> not for children, it's not for adults, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. And even inside, I would not say this is geared towards third graders. That's not the case. No, no. We really, the beauty of, of hands-on is that you can approach any of these experiences as a very small child, and you're gonna bring your small child experience, your enthusiasm, 
who you are as a small child to it, and you're going to gain something. And as you grow, you're going to bring a little different person, because you're a different person. You have a different body of knowledge, and that you bring that, and so you walk away with a different experience. As an adult, the same thing. So as you grow, same exhibit, same experience, but different because of what you bring to it. It's obvious to me that there must have been a decision is that we're not going to make this a local museum. This yes. is much larger than that. It is much larger. This is the state science center. And not only in what we do in this building, but we go out across the state. We have a traveling program, and we are all over the state from corner to corner with that program. We serve students. We serve teachers. We serve communities. Um, in fact, we were in Newtown. We will be in Drayton next week. We go all over the place to make sure that the rural communities are as well served as our local community. And you mentioned earlier as we were walking around, you're seeing construction still happening. We're, we're not completely done. There's still work to be done. There's still projects that we're going to continue to work on. But we're done enough. We are as finished as we need to be to get back to what we do which is serving the, the children and families of our community and state. And I'm sure if there are educators listening here today, you're shouting out to them, give us a call. Yes, field trips, and they can book those online. They can go to the website and book those online, and we are already booking field trips, we're booking weddings, we're booking graduation parties, all kinds of things that are coming in here. Um, but because of some of the um, inflationary factors, we'll continue to work, we'll continue to raise money and make this place even better than what they'll see the first time they come in. We're going to walk through the front doors, literally. Yeah. What am I going to see right when I come in the front door? As you walk in, well, the first thing that most everyone notices is the beautiful view from the lobby out to the west. We're overlooking the Missouri River. And then, of course, you're going to see Forces in Motion, which is a big cage where when you go inside, you get to start throwing balls around with all kinds of force. There's bowling balls that will drop and create pressure and throw balls around. There's a human-powered blower. There's uh, bellows that you can stand on and um, move around with a partner. And it's just tons of fun to see those balls flying around. The focus is STEM. The focus is STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And how do you coordinate with like North Dakota's Department of Education and others to make sure you have appropriate reader rails and interpretation and all of those things? Yeah, we align everything that we do with the science standards through DPI. In fact, some of our staff have been involved in developing those standards and reviewing those standards to make sure. I mean, this is not school, but we still want to make sure that what we do is scientifically accurate and appropriate so that when a teacher comes in or when students come in, they're, they're learning the true science that's out there. We want to make sure that we're aligned. Okay, this might be my least favorite thing that I've seen so far. I'm not a flosser. <laughs> <laughs> Yet I see this big mouth and and this is exactly what we call it. It's big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's it stands taller than me. Yes, it this does. mouth, and it allows perfect kids, teeth. I might add perfect. Okay. Not actually no. Oh, we we have we have a cavity. Oh, my so so uh, <laughs> visitors can find out what a cavity looks like. They can take their large toothbrushes and they can brush the teeth and floss the teeth, and they can learn about dental health. What better way to do that? They can also learn about optical. So we are in what we call examining you, which is all about health and human body. People love to learn about themselves. They want to know, why does my body do what it does? So we've got things on how you hear. How does your skin look under a very strong microscope? How does my brain look inside? What does it look like inside of my skin? So we have a vein viewer where you can actually see your veins right through your skin. We've got the bloodstream superhighway that pulses, and if you touch it, you can actually feel the pulse. There's just all kinds of really cool things about how your body works. We have a reaction in action where you can test your reflexes. We have something on high blood pressure. Oftentimes you might hear that someone has high blood pressure and you think, what does that mean? We have an exhibit that will show you exactly what that is all about. 
we have laparoscopy. So on this one, we did this in prototype, and with laparoscopy, as you know, a surgeon is operating with a camera, and they're, they're operating inside of a person, but they have a camera that's guiding them. With our exhibit, we also wanted to show, without the camera, how you might be able to see inside, and then you switch to using the camera. And it's really interesting how you have to almost trick your brain into seeing a completely different way. It's almost like a young child can see what it might feel like to actually do surgery. Yes, yes. And for us, career connections are very important from a very young age. Not that we're trying to push kids into careers, but to introduce them to the possibilities that are out there and just give them ideas. If you like this, well, maybe you might consider going into the medical field. But if you don't, well, let's guide you into something else. Let's show you some other possibilities. So now let's walk over to our growing science area. We have a virtual farm exhibit where you would sit down to a playing field that's on a screen, a touch screen, and each side of it is a different farm from a different area of North Dakota. And those um, areas are depicted in the soil towers that are seven feet high, two, two by two foot square cubic, and then you can touch those and it tells you all about how farming changes across our state. And then this virtual farm gives you the chance to make some decisions. What kind of crops will you plant? What kind of technologies will you use? Depending on where you're farming, those decisions should be different. And then depending on how you made those choices, the farming season will play out. You may be profitable, you may not. There's a lot of research yes. that went into this. Absolutely. For not just the farming section, but every part of the museum. And we were so fortunate to get those subject matter experts to help us determine how to do this. I mean, we had Doug Goring, our agriculture commissioner, come in and help us talk through some of the, these things. We had other subject matter experts in all these different areas. So within the growing science, we also have a steer where we can listen to healthy sounds and determine, is that steer healthy based on the sounds that are coming from it? We've got a cow where it's wearing what we call a Fitbit where it's actually a, like a, a collar that the farmer gets to read its um, ruminations and different things. And it's it, the data. It's, yes. About its individual About um, its individual a, health, a yeah. A beef cow and a dairy cow yes. on display here. Yes. And then we also have a weather station. So we've got where you can make your own cloud. We've got an aeolian landscape, which you may have seen with sand, where you can move sand around. Mm -hmm. We did this virtually where you can move trees and make the trees and actually drag them and make tree rows where you can stop the wind and protect the farmland or the animals and make the, um, the wind less, less of a problem as you're working with this one. Beth is using a big touch screen display doing exactly that. She just moved two Plains cottonwoods near a sunflower field and understood immediately what that meant to the production of the field and other things about the field. Yeah, and you can see the shadows on, on this field. Mm -hmm. You can see right where those trees are going. What we tried to do too, again, you talk about research, making sure that the trees we chose are trees that are in North Dakota. The wind patterns are North Dakota patterns. This is North Dakota's gateway to science. So everything that we do, even down to the the photos that are used on our signage is North Dakota because we want to make sure that the students in our state understand that there is science happening in our state and they can find a career doing that science in our state. They can work right here when they get out of school. They can go to school right here. They can get into any of these career opportunities. And now we're walking across a state map on our on our floor. I'm it's Fargo. Six, 16 feet by nine Jamestown. feet. It's a beautiful map. No, still heading west. <laughs> now I'm already in Dickinson. Beach isn't here, but I think I'm right on the edge here. Yep. And then the soil towers that I mentioned when we were talking about virtual farm are are standing on the edge of that map, and they depict the soil conditions across the state. Only four 
areas, but it gives you an idea of how the soil conditions change. And then we've got plants up above each of these towers. They're actually, they're real plants that we dried. And you can see the difference of how they grow over in the Fargo area. Look at the difference. Mm -hmm. They're very tall. And this is a cutout where you can see what it might look like four feet under the soil, uh, the, the top of the, um, the surface, six feet, eight feet underneath. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating, mm -hmm. just fascinating. And now we're stepping into transforming energy. And we have all kinds of energy. In North Dakota, it's all of the above. We have some fossil fuels, we have some alternative. We also, within our exhibits, are showing different things about choosing energy. So we start with something called why we need energy. And we start by trying to turn a turbine. And you can see I've got one light bulb on. That's it. That's all I can do by myself. If I added a person, we might get up to three or four. If we go faster, we could go We could go more. Okay. Oh my goodness, we got up to four. Look at that. Four. Okay. Sure. But that's not a lot, right. and we get tired pretty fast. So why do we need to find other energy sources? Because we would wear ourselves out trying to make enough energy. We have something called Power Your City, where we give the, the visitor a chance to choose their own inputs. They can choose coal or natural gas or hydroelectric or solar or wind. Choose their inputs, and then they play out a time frame and they are expected to power their city. We're not telling them what's right, what's wrong, figure it out. There's a lot of demands. We've got Power It Up shows how a generator works. We've got an oil refinery exhibit just to show how is the distillation process. What does that mean if you're refining something? How does it work? Very well displayed. And then right next to it, we have a pump jack where they're extracting oil and then while they're extracting it, it's producing gases and we're capturing that gas. Something we would like to add in the future is carbon management and also hydrogen because those are some of the cutting edge and th so we've got those on the works as well. Ethanol is another one and we've had this one for a little bit. The Ethanol Council helped us figure that out. We've got an augmented reality sandbox in here as well that shows topographical things. We've got wind power. We have messaging from the drill bit, which is where the, the drill operator is talking, literally talking to the drill bit and getting messages back for directional drilling, exactly. So now we're gonna enter the section that has transportation kind of going all throughout. And we're gonna take a left into our science first area. So here at North Dakota's Gateway to Science, we believe that science starts from a very young age. And so we have a space, especially for the littles. We have a tiny climber. We have something called a tubulum, which is a music maker with mm -hmm. all kinds of Dr. Seuss looking tubes where you can bang on it and make music. We have a scarf shooter where they can put scarves into a wind tunnel and it'll come floating out a building section with foam blocks and a conveyor belt that was custom made for us by local developers where the, they can put the blocks up and it'll go into these lovely bins that they also made for us. And then we also have a Bernoulli where the balls will float on the air. I don't know if your visitors will be able to hear the air. There we go. It's suspension. It's just suspended yep. there and it will last forever. Yep. So with Bernoulli, there's a column of air that comes up and it basically wraps around the ball and joins at the top. So that's why it stays suspended. It's the air is still, if you put your hand above here, Craig, you'll hear, you'll feel there's air above the ball as well as below. And you can control it going up and down by yes. doing just what you did, exactly. the air. Exactly. And then there's space. So we have Sun Earth Universe. We're about to get a mission to Mars exhibit that'll add to, to this exhibit that we've had for a while on Sun Earth Universe. And then within transportation, we have a racetrack where you can snap together pieces that have been 3D printed. And the racetrack is as long as 
the derbies that the Boy Scouts do. So Boy Scouts could actually bring their derby cars in and test them. Your Pinewood Derby. The Pinewood Derby. Place. This is the one, yeah. So they can test their cars here, or they can snap together some of our pieces. And then let's just slip into our water section. Everybody loves to play with water. In this section, be prepared to get wet. This could so we, be a dangerous place for a parent, I yes. think. <laughs> but we do have some dryers to dry them I see off. That. <laughs> so we in this we have one called working water where they pump up some pressure and then it's basically like a shooting gallery. So on the backdrop are different areas that tell you how we use water. So there's a car wash, there's a watering can, there's a fisherman, there's some frogs. Um, and you, what you do is you aim at those things, and if you aim right, then it'll make those things move and it'll tell you about how we use water in different areas. And then the water table has all kinds of areas and it's different levels. So mm -hmm. the littlest kids can be at the lower level and the older kids can come up to the bigger ones. And there's just lots of fun things that they can do. Kids can play water. and divert the water however they would yep. like. We have they dams. Can move dams left we and right. We have a lock system. Mm -hmm. We have boats. What do you want a parent to think about when they bring their children here? I want them to think about how science is just exploring the world around them. Everyone is born a scientist. So often I hear, oh, we don't do science. I, science is scary. It doesn't need to be. Science is just exploration. And so if you just open the world and allow your child to explore and explore with them, you don't need to know all the answers, find the answers with them. So often we think we need to give them the answers. The better thing is to ask them good questions. Why is this doing this? I don't know. Why do you think this is doing it? What do you think would happen if we push this button? What do you think would happen if we move these pieces so that the water, where will the water go if we move the pieces around? Ask those questions, have them try things, and then it becomes a joint exploration instead of mom and dad have to know everything and, and child doesn't know anything, you know, and has to be told. Beth, will there be staff or others in the museum available to, for folks to ask questions to? Yes. The question that I have right now is I do not know what I'm seeing right here. This is this hydroelectric. Is the water table, the water appears to be yeah. moving a turbine, but I don't mm -hmm. know how the water is getting in or how it's operating. So you're looking at a dam that's depicted here. So you've got water coming at this area and it's coming, it's falling down. I'm trying to describe this for your, for your listeners. It's falling down and as it falls, it creates energy called hydroelectric and that's what's making the turbine turn around. And the electricity would be coming. And the electricity right then up. is what we would use and we use it in our state. So yes, we will have people that will help with that. And also our people are, are trained to ask good questions as well and not just provide all of the answers. So it's important that parents learn that too. What would a science museum be without rockets? Oh, yeah. we love it, yes. <laughs> so you're looking now at what we call our bottle rocket, up, up, and away. And because we're in this new facility, we could add another level. It's much higher than it used to be. If you've come to the Science Center before, you've, you probably are familiar with this one where you put a bottle on and you pump up the pressure and push the button and off it launches. Now it's even higher. It goes right up into the rafters. It's great. That's Main Street's Craig Blumenshine in conversation with Beth Demke, the executive director of North Dakota's Gateway to Science, which celebrated opening a new building this past weekend. They continue the conversation with more science after this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. A House committee is looking at a proposed state constitutional amendment that would eliminate the general property tax. As a replacement, the state would pick up local property taxes. Supporters say the state is flush with cash and could easily afford it. Former Bismarck Republican Representative Rick Becker told the House Finance and Tax Committee. We have an opportunity to set ourselves up by doing something that no other state has done or frankly likely can do. And that makes us able to have this incentive for businesses to economically diversify 
And then after, after that economic diversification, if oil dries up, it doesn't matter. We've got other industries. Becker also told the committee this would not mean a loss of con- local control because the local governing boards would decide how to spend that money. However, opponents say if passed, this measure would remove local control. Danelle Presky of the Association of Counties told the committee there is a time in the budget process where people have a chance to weigh in on property tax increases and how the money is being spent. But she says those budget meetings are not well attended. I think the reason why we hear so many complaints across the state about property taxes is because it's a bill. Citizens hear that our state is flush with with cash and have strong revenues and are sitting in a very healthy state, but they are still receiving a bill. And it's the disconnect that these are the local services that they are receiving a bill for. But then again, when asked what services you want to do without... That's tough to get an answer to. The committee did not take action on the amendment. If it passes both the House and Senate, it would go to a vote of the people. A USDA report shows that the number of farms in the United States is down by nearly 10,000 from 2021. As Harvest Public Media's Eva uh, Tesfai reports, it puts the number of farms nationally at just over 2 million. In addition to the number of farms, the amount of land in farms has also decreased by almost 2 million acres in 2022. At the same time, the average size of a farm increased slightly. Francine Miller focuses on land access issues at Vermont Law and Graduate School. Ag land is subject to so much development pressure, especially around urban or peri-urban areas, thus the loss of acreage. Small farms are having such a difficult time across the country making it economically. She says that the USDA should offer better support to small family farmers, and that should be addressed in the upcoming farm bill. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. And counties, cities, townships, and tribal governments could see some assistance for snow removal from the North Dakota government. Senate Bill 2183 would provide $25 million to reimburse communities affected by record-breaking snowfall in the state. Senator Terry Wanzik of Jamestown says communities can be, can be reimbursed 60% for any snow removal that surpassed 150% of their initial budget. Advocates of the bill say high fuel prices, workforce issues, and rising inflation are more reasons communities are looking for assistance to remove snow. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and today we are doing a tour of North Dakota's brand new Gateway to Science building. It opened just this past weekend. Executive Director Beth Demke in conversation with Craig Blumenschein, and we pick up the tour now at the build station for the launch center. I mentioned before how important hands-on is, and we've got a couple of launch stations here, one where you can launch paper airplanes and one where you can launch rockets. Towards targets. And Towards see if targets. You can aim them through the hoops. Right. And so the first thing you would want to do is stop at the build where we've got paper and we've got tape and scissors. Doesn't have to be fancy. So you'd start by building and then you go over to the launch station. And these launchers, you can change the trajectory, you can change the angle, and then you hit the button and launch, launch your, your creation. But then, try, try again is the scientific method. Did it do what you wanted it to do? What would you do differently to make it change? And then a lot of times you learn more if it didn't do it the first time. A lot of times, as you are working on something, if if it didn't do it right or or the way you envisioned, you think more. If it did it the first time, you go, okay, we're done, and we walk away. Science would be easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, but so often, it's like, oh no, I wanted it to go higher. Okay, how would you make it go higher? I wanted it to go that way. You know, I wanted to go right, it went left. Okay, what would we do differently? I I must believe, knowing someone in your position, you're at this point and you're already thinking, what's next? We are already um, planning what our outdoor classroom will look like. As soon as spring hits, we'll be working on our landscape plan and our outdoor classroom will be built. That will come right outside of our education wing. We also have plans to expand our, our galleries. We cut it down a little bit when we started construction and we've got room to expand on this area um, right on our own property. 
I'm, we're walking now, by the way, into our Frank Cook lab, which was named after our founding scientists. So the, we've got a lab that is set up for high school level. But imagine being a child mm. in third grade and getting to do some lab experiments in a real lab. Modern that was, with machines. Is that a 3D printer I'm looking at? Yep, we have 3D printers, CNC machines. We will have all kinds of things upstairs in our innovation center. So yeah, there's, there's a lot on the horizon for Gateway to Science. I see a telescope over in the corner. We have, we have a number of telescopes, and we'll be doing some stargazing sessions. We've got a deck out on the west and south area. That'll be a great place to do some stargazing. Relative to summer, you talked about camps already being available. Mm -hmm. Is it inclusive? Is it, is, are you conscious that there might be some folks who maybe can't afford things that want to take advantage of what Absolutely. this great place has to offer? So affordability and accessibility is a big part of, of our mission. We are part of Museums for All, which means that if you come to the Science Center and you are carrying an EBT card, it's a $3 admission across the board. So our admission is, is quite low for, for those folks. Also, we have a scholarship program for anyone that wants to come to our, our programs and our camps. So all they have to do is fill out a very simple application and get one reference. I don't need to see sure. financial. It's, it's not, a, not a big bureaucratic hoop. Right. You'll take people at their yep. work. We want to make sure that, our, that we are not an exclusive club. Science should be for everyone. Mm -hmm. How long do they last and what can children expect? Each of our summer camps, we call them STEM adventure camps. So we used to run camps years ago that were subject specific. And we decided not to do that anymore. We call them STEM adventure because we want children to sign up for an adventure, an adventure in STEM. And our educators will curate that adventure based on their interest. So as they sign up, it's for a week long. They can sign up for full days or half days. Several in the summer? Yes, all summer long. So basically every week in the summer except for the week of 4th of July, they can sign up. And we have some students that will sign up for multiple weeks throughout the summer. And so they will tell us what they like to do. And then our educators will take a look at that group of students for that particular week and make sure that they hit those things. And other things as well. Because a lot of times you think, well, all I want to do is Legos or something like that. But really, we can give you something else that will give you, you know, show you something different than what you thought you like and expose you or introduce you to something completely new. And so that's where the adventure comes in. What kind of adult programs do you envision? We are already going to pull the trigger on beer. <laughs> how beer is yeah, made? How beer is okay. made. We're, we're going to be working with BSC through their Ollie program and doing a beer in science with Laughing Sun in June and July. So that's the first one we'll do. But there'll be lots of other things. I just heard this morning from someone who wants us to do some coding for adults mm -hmm. and some other, other types of programs. I think you know maybe there's a Lego club for adults. Imagine there, lecturers coming and, and, and speaking yeah, to groups. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've done that somewhat before because we're part of the Visiting Scientists series, which is a group that brings in scientists from all over the country and we'll continue to do that. And of course, now we've got a facility where we can actually host some of them. Beth, we're walking up a ramp now on the second floor. And if we thought the view was great downstairs, <laughs> holy cow. This is the money shot, Craig. Um, this is our second floor. We call this our innovation space. And it will be used for makerspace kinds of things like the 3D printers, the CNC machines. A, a chance for people to just be creative, but it's also our event space. You can see from the size of the windows, the enormous expanse out there with the view, that this will be a beautiful place to and have when an you event. talk about events, you, you mentioned weddings, reunions, pretty much whatever. The Graduation parties. We'll be hosting our own fundraiser. Our Einstein on Wine is our signature fundraiser. That will be in this room, yes. Tell me about fundraising. Um, what did this building cost? How did you get there? And what is important <laughs> down the road? Sure. The project itself, the all-in, was about $26 million. That included exhibits and so on. 
we ended up running into inflation as mm -hmm. as most did so it actually went over that you know that was the initial initial budget but um, the way that we raised the monies we started with a capital campaign the state made a major investment which is the only way we could have done this but we've had some very generous donors and we're still seeking money we're still going to be continuing to raise funds it's always a challenge you know as you're running a nonprofit and to operate a museum like this it's not a money maker it is not mm -hmm. no the, some of the events that we host will help in that regard mm -hmm. you know because the the rental will go toward that but there's always going to be operating costs that we have to make sure that we're meeting Beth Demke the executive director of the North Dakota Gateway to Science congratulations on all thank the you. great work you have done thank you and thank I appreciate you for joining it. us on Main Street thanks it's been great to be with you that's North Dakota's Gateway to Science Executive Director Beth Demke in conversation with Main Street's Craig Blumenshine about the brand new building that just celebrated its grand opening this past weekend. This is the third attempt at a building and the first time for a standalone building for North Dakota's Gateway to Science. You can find out more, including STEM camps, volunteer opportunities, admission, and hours at gatewaytoscience.org. Still to come on Main Street, funding for weather stations and how that impacts everything from storm warnings to crop insurance. Psychologist Dacher Keltner once had a student stand under a grove of giant eucalyptus trees. In one to two minutes, our students reported feeling less narcissistic, less entitled. You just share more when you're feeling awe. You cooperate more. The power of everyday awe. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain, here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Mesonet may not be a word that you know, but you likely rely on the information that mesonets provide. This is a network of automated weather and sometimes environmental monitoring stations that are used to record data for farmers, researchers, and emergency responders. The information is the backbone of everything from storm warnings to climate science and crop insurance. But as Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert reports, financing for many state mesonets is on shaky ground. Gwyn Beatty tugs open the frosty door to her lab's industrial-style freezer, which houses thousands of plant and bacteria samples. It starts beeping angrily at her. And you can't have it open too long or else it beeps at you and says, I don't want to warm up. Beatty is a professor of plant pathology at Iowa State University. She recently received a big grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to study drought resiliency in crops, a subject of increasing importance. There's not a sustainable amount of available um, fresh water for agriculture everywhere in the way we're going. So we really need plants that can thrive with less water. But federal funding for that research is becoming more scarce. According to the USDA, federal funding levels for agriculture research are the same now as they were in the 1970s. Meanwhile, China has surpassed the U.S. in its agriculture research funding. Brazil, a major competitor in ag exports, has also increased its funding. Beth Ford is the CEO of ag giant Land O'Lakes. Speaking at a recent public event, she said she's worried the U.S. is falling behind in preparing for agriculture's stark future. We're going to have less arable land, less available water in the future. We know this. Um, and at the same time, population set to go to nine and a half, 10 billion. By 2050, we have to produce more food than the last 5,000 years combined. That should be an eye opener, she says. But while public funding for ag research has fallen over the past two decades, private funding from companies like Land O'Lakes has shot up. Iowa State University, for example, has seen a 50% increase in company-funded research over just the last two years, and agriculture has been at the forefront of that. Gabrielle Resch McNally does agriculture research with American Farmland Trust. She says relying on corporations for funding could skew the overall research agenda. They're looking for ways that research can 
develop products, you know, tangible, intangible, that people will spend money on that will increase their base of profit. Research is a public good, she says, and it should mostly be up to the federal government to fund it. I think it's danger to move to a system where the government that, yes, albeit influenced by politics, that it has the public interest in mind more than any other entity and can take a broader view. Research dollars are determined by Congress via the Farm Bill, which is set for reauthorization next year. Gordon Merrick is the Policy and Programs Manager with the Organic Farming Research Foundation. He advocates in Washington, D.C. for more ag research funding, which he says can be a tough sell. Agricultural research especially is like slow, it's methodical. There's no crazy cutting edge new way to organically control bindweed that hits the <laughs> hits the airwaves. Earlier this year, the Senate increased the research budgets for agencies including the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and the Department of Energy. The USDA, however, saw another budget decrease when accounting for inflation. Iowa State professor Gwyn Beatty says that's a dangerous trend. It's in all of our best interest to have food security. Food security is not only good for food, but it's actually also for political stability and world stability. And the only way to have food security is to have enough knowledge and resources to continue to produce food even in the face of adverse conditions. And when in the era of climate change has the world ever faced such adverse conditions? For Harvest Public Media, I'm Dana Cronin. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collaboration focusing on America's rural and ag issues. Still to come on Main Street, poetry. Support for Prairie Public is provided by the Bush Foundation, investing in great ideas and the people who power them in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native nations that share that same geography. Learn more at bushfoundation.org. The housing market is tight, and that's pitting generations of home buyers against each other. Who wins and who loses? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. 4 a.m. to 9 central here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And weather-wise, March is, well, March. It's up, it's down, it's rainy, it's sunny, it's snowy. It's all of the events at once. And it can be a little difficult to plan to be outside. Well, why not cuddle up with poetry instead? Poetry from Studio 47 comes to us from Patrick Hicks, writer-in-residence and member of the English faculty at Augustana University in Sioux Falls. And today, he profiles poet Sandy Longhorn. Longhorn was born on January 7, 1971, in Waterloo, Iowa. She got interested in writing at a very early age. When asked about her passion for the written word, she had this to say in a recent interview. I was interested in writing from the time I could hold a pencil. This stemmed directly from being an avid reader. I get such a charge out of reading anything that moves me, that teaches me what it means to be alive in this weird, joyful, terrifying world, that once I started writing, I wanted to share that feeling with readers, too. I always loved the sounds of words and how they built meaning. After graduating from Waterloo West High School, Longhorn went to the College of St. Benedict in St. Joseph, Minnesota, where she majored in English and graduated summa cum laude. Shortly after receiving her bachelor's degree, she moved around the country and worked for a variety of independent publishers. In time, she went to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, where she took an MFA in poetry. Her books include Blood Almanac, The Girlhood Book of Prairie Myths, and The Alchemy of My Mortal Soul. Longhorn has won the Jakar Press Full-Length Book Award, the Anhinga Prize, the Louise Boggan Award, and she has won fellowships from the Porter Fund Literary Prize as well as the Arkansas Arts Council. She teaches creative writing at the University of Central Arkansas, where she directs the C.D. Wright Women Writers Conference. Today's poem is Jack and Diane, Rearview Mirror. Art, of course, does not exist in a vacuum. Artists of all stripes, be they painters, musicians, potters, or writers, are influenced by the world around them. I particularly like poems that directly reference their point of inspiration, their genesis, if you will. In poetry, you'll often see a small tagline beneath a title that says something like, 
after Emily Dickinson or after Edna St. Vincent Millay. This is the poet's way of telling the reader they are using a previous poem. It is a way to carry on a conversation. It is a way to help readers know how a poem should be framed and considered. Poets have been doing this for centuries, and it is, of course, a way of paying homage. What I really like about our poem for today is how Longhorn takes a familiar song, in this case, John Mellencamp's Jack and Diane, and she wonders what happens to that couple in the future. If Mellencamp is interested in two teenage American kids, Longhorn wonders what happens after they graduate from high school and the realities of adulthood come crashing down upon them. This is Jack and Diane, Rearview Mirror, by Sandy Longhorn. Diane's mother drove her to Des Moines to have the baby, planned a C-section so Catholic charities could be on hand to receive the newborn and pass it on to a better home. Jack, he left the state, made the second string at a D2 school before he got cut for a DUI on homecoming. The last she heard, he drifted down to Davenport, where he worked a lock and dam. Diane dreamed at night about her baby's face, a slick blur she caught from the corner of her eye in the delivery room, worked to get a certificate from the local junior college, and took a job managing the office for Ray's plumbing and heating. Holding on to 16, she feathered her hair and kept her Bobby Brooks a bit too tight when she went to the locker room tavern. Pregnant again, at 19, she moved from home, married the shortstop for the Smokin' Aces softball team, and had his number tattooed over her heart. She gave up cigs for good when Brad Jr. was born, saved back a stash of cash to buy him authentic polo shirts and hush puppy baby shoes. Diane made damn sure he had a football in his hands the day he learned to stand. That was Patrick Hicks reading Jack and Diane, Rearview Mirror, from poet Sandy Longhorn. Poetry from Studio 47 is produced at Augustana University in Sioux Falls by Peter Folliard. Dakota Datebook is next. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for March 6th. This week, in 1886... Readers of the previous day's Bismarck Weekly Tribune were treated to a glorious tall tale. It mocked the information required for proving up land claims. It read, Crossroads newspapers amused their readers by the publication of such items as the following. Questions to be added to Land Commissioner Sparks' catechism to be asked the claimant when proving up. In what state were you born? And is your mother a woman? Are you a Christian or a Democrat? What is your sex, and how do you know? Does your wife cook potatoes with the skin on? What is the difference between a hypothetical hyperbole and a perpendicular parallelogram? What was your name before you left the States? Do you want the land for a farm or a skating rink? Do your wife's folks live with you, and how old is your grandmother? Have you ever told a lie? If so, has it ever been found out? The party satisfactorily answering the above questions will get his patent from the local land office. This fake news story became highly appreciated. It got reprinted not only throughout Dakota Territory, but in dozens of newspapers across the United States. For example, the Jamestown Alert fittingly reprinted this story on April 1st. It got reprinted in Deadwood three days later. The Philadelphia Inquirer reprinted it, as did newspapers in Yazoo, Mississippi, and San Diego County, California. The Western Cyclone, a historically black newspaper based in Nicodemus, Kansas, carried the story later that year in July. In December, newspapers in Idaho would carry this story under the caption, Queer Questions. This lampoon, with its intrusive, 
stupid, and pointless questions expressed exasperation with the red tape for which the United States General Land Office had become notorious. This questionnaire also reflected the controversial tenure of Commissioner William Sparks. Today's Decoded Date book is written by Andrew Alexis Varvold. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Decoded Date book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Across the state, it is pretty common to see deer, maybe even buffalo, and certainly some turkeys. From a distance, they might appear a bit drab-looking, but they are colorful birds. We're going to learn more about the beard in today's Bird Note. This is Bird Note. That's the gobble of a tom turkey, a big male. He weighs nearly 25 pounds. That rubbery, gurgling sound is his way of telling nearby hens that he's eager for company. It's also his way of telling nearby toms to back off. It's spring, and the mating season is in full flush. If he's lucky, a hen might yelp in reply. I'm here, she says, letting him know she's receptive to a mate. With his brilliantly colored plumage fanned out in display, this tom is a handsome sight to behold. He has a bright red head, long spurs, and a beard. This beard is a small cluster of bristles that sprouts from the bird's chest plumage. It looks like a misplaced ponytail. The older the tom, the longer the beard. If a hen turkey likes what she sees, she'll crouch as a signal that she's ready to mate. After mating, the two birds go their separate ways. When the breeding season wanes, hens will lay eggs and sit their nests. With any luck, baby turkeys should arrive about a month later. For Bird Note, I'm Michael Stein. That's it for this Monday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, a North Dakota connection to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We hear from Dr. Stephen Reed, a professor of religion and philosophy at the University of Jamestown. He spent last fall in Norway doing research on fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.